Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is fiction writer Sam Lipsight. Lipsight's first short story collection, Venus Drive, came out in 2000 and was named one of the top 25 books of the year by The Village Voice. Since then, he's written three novels, The Subject Steve, Homeland, and The Ask, the latter two both New York Times notable books. Sam Lipsight is a 2008 recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, teaches creative writing at Columbia University, and he's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his new short story collection entitled The Fun Parts. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sam Lipsight. Thanks for having me. So your career so far is bookended by two short story collections with three novels sandwiched in between. Yeah. And, and now you're, you're returning to the short story form after 13 years since, since Venus Drive. How has it seemed different to you in, 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 in coming back to it? Well, uh, I think that I really wanted to try a bunch of different things in, in this collection. Venus Drive was my first book, and uh, the stories had very similar tones and, uh, and a kind of similar sp- momentum to them and uh, the characters were in pretty similar predicaments and I just wanted to try some different approaches, try different kinds of characters and and see what the short story would be like for me now. And and do you see, coming back to the short story, does it reflect back on on your growth as a writer at all, that you you see changes in yourself because of it? Well, I think I I just challenged myself there. I hadn't really written uh, with female protagonists in a close third person before and I found that uh a, a really uh enlightening thing and uh and then playing around with some, in some of the stories with structure uh was was also something that excited me and uh and so yeah I, I just I felt that I I was expanding but also there are some moments in the book that kind of touch back to Venus Drive that and um there's even a return of a character who appeared in some of my early fiction, both in the first collection and in uh, a novel I wrote called Homeland, uh, a man named Gary. And so I I kind of wrote a Gary story for this piece as well. So I I think I was looking back, looking forward. I, I heard a great thing recently. Somebody, a friend told me about an artist he knew who said that he he would go into his studio, and most most of the time, he he would just work on what he was working on. But sometimes he made something that he made five years ago, and sometimes he made something that he probably wouldn't really make for five until five years later. And so there's always that feeling of oh, I'm touching on new ground, and maybe that's something I'll explore more later on. And oh, I'm still staying connected to to what I was doing and who I used to be. Well, definitely in the fun parts there, there's the Republic of Empathy, which both has the multiple points of view, but also has uh, part of the story narrated by a predator drone, which, yes. which feels like a, <laughs> a new a new way to go. But what you mentioned also the um, the female protagonist, which really jumped out at me because I, I think of some of your humor as being boyish and having a male um, sensibility about the type of humor it is. But you really pulled off the female point of view, I felt. Like, oh, thank and, you. And it felt like, yes, this is identifiably a lipsite story, but it also felt like it had a different vibration than the other stories, the, both the climber room, room. And, and the deniers. Yeah. How, tell, tell us about the experience of, of 
of adopting that point of view for you? Did it come with any trepidation or did it feel... uh, Just in the very beginning, but I I think once I started writing, uh, I really, you know, I realized that uh, women, and you don't want to generalize about women in the same way you don't want to generalize about men or anybody. So these particular women were people I felt pretty familiar with and people, I'm not saying they were people I knew, but... You know, some of the sensibility and some of the the worldview there uh, related to a, a lot of women I've known in my life, and so uh, yeah, they it felt it felt right once I was going. One of the things that I think really makes your writing compelling is this tension, this uneasy tension between comedy and tragedy, and it also invites for different people to come away with a different feeling from each story, or maybe even the same person in a different mood. Like I think about when the first time I read Portnoy's Complaint, for instance, I thought it was just hilarious. And then coming back to it later, I, I found it actually to be pretty sad and, yeah. and dark. Uh, but you, but it's, it feels like that tension between those two things really allows for these multiple interpretations. So I had a question based on that for you, which is uh, I'm reading a lot of the reviews of the fun parts, and it feels like a lot of reviewers are really pulling out things from uh, your stories about the protagonists being losers, about the um, economic decline and the crappy jobs. And I wonder if part of what's going on now is what's drawing that forward into what people are noticing in your stories. Have you, have you seen that shift with what shifts in the world outside and how people take your fiction? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it was funny that I was reading the, the other night and somebody, we did a Q&A afterward and some guy said, well, you know, why do you write about such pitiful people? And that really struck me because I don't con- I don't consider them that pitiful. I I said, well, then you're just saying that, you know, I'm pitiful and my friends are pitiful. But uh, uh, I I think that in general, uh, people used to just call these these kinds of characters losers, and and but I don't think they're really. I think the idea of what of all of that is changing as. Things have sort of changed in our society and in our economy, and now we we just we know so many people who are struggling, and uh, it's not a mark of uh, your personal failure anymore. It's not some. It's not a stigma. Everybody everybody is try- really fighting at this point, and so um, that's how I've always seen my characters as. Society calls them losers because they don't live up to kind of consumerist dreams of what success is and what uh, living a the right kind of life might be. And they, they have their problems and they have their troubles and they have their self-inflicted wounds. Uh, but I always see them as people trying not to surrender and or being or being kind of caught in a in a sometimes a, a self-delusion that they can make it this way when maybe that's not, and that's where some of the kind of crazy behavior of these characters comes from. But I do think that uh, people are viewing some of some of these characters and st- and the kinds of things that I write a bit differently now. Yeah, I would be curious if you could do this experiment where uh, if people, if the fun parts had come out during the housing bubble and everyone's making money on flipping their houses, if right. they would have focus more on the humor because there's so much humor in the in in the fun parts as well and maybe if there wasn't that collapse happening that anxiety yeah they would have put that in the background instead of the foreground it's yeah it is interesting because 
I wrote uh, a book when I wrote this book, Homeland, it came out in 2005. We were in the midst of of the roaring times, and uh, and I think people focused more on this the character in that book as being uh, somehow on the margins, and and he felt that way, and he talked about that. But I, I don't know if it, if it resonated as much as it does now. The humor to me is is the constant. It goes along with the, well, you said it yourself, tragic comic. I mean, serio comic is a phrase that that is useful. I don't. I have a hard time seeing one without the other. Everything is seems pretty dark and pretty funny. Well, in one of your interviews recently with Esquire, they asked if you could tongue in cheek. They asked if you could distill the fun parts into a self help motto. What would it be? And and you said, "Fake it until you break it." it which point you own it. But it actually, I know you were probably just throwing that out there, but it does feel like a good encapsulation in a way. And it felt to me like a key to why these characters who are, who are failing, they're courageous often, but they're also failing. Um, why? We... And they're also making stupid decisions. I mean, True. I'm not, I'm not setting them up as, as martyrs here. Yeah. <laughs> and, but these, even these characters, I think because of this fake it until you break it motto, that's how we. That's the entryway where we can be empathetic for them, because I, I, at least I believe that we're all sort of muddling through, and we're all play acting in some ways our own lives. And, and yeah. you, we're watching these characters, and you've sort of um, taken away any of the the pretense, and we're seeing that they have no idea what they're doing, essentially. Right. Yeah, and you know, nobody does really. You can't really. I could say, well, after this interview, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, but I don't know what's going to happen when I walk out of the studio. So it's hard to forecast, you know, even larger things. What am I going to do with my life? Yeah. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with author Sam Lipsight about his short story collection, The Fun Parts. When we interviewed uh, George Saunders on Between the Covers, he talked a, a little bit about how the cruelty of capitalism informed some of his writing in the sense that there's no mercy if you screw up and you're in a certain situation or something, you get an illness, something happens, um, you may never recover. There may never be um, uh, success. Uh, and I felt like that really also is something that you're confronting too, this this idea of there not being a safety net, not only under your characters, but really under anybody. Even the winners in your stories, really, it feels to me like they... Um, the the winning isn't as winning as it seems. Yeah, is that it's does not, that resonate to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I and I, I actually actually I love the way George was going on big television shows and quoting Terry Eagleton about capitalism and you know killing sensuality and, and all of these things. I thought that was great. Yeah, I'm I, I would completely agree with that. I think that's that's the 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 that's the environment within which these characters and these stories are, are unfolding. And uh, you can't, you, well, it, I, I think it's a mistake to get too polemical in fiction. You know, you can't uh, deny the atmosphere if you want to write about people right now. Well, I'm, I'm curious about uh, becoming, not becoming too polemical in fiction in the sense that you do have a lot of class issues and class anxiety and in even class anger going on and, and brewing underneath the surface in these stories. I think of like Mitch, the male doulo who, who goes into this overly curated life and it's, and, and, yeah. and then the reverse also with the woman in the climber room who 
um, is abused basically because she's in a subservient situation. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you deal with what I'm guessing are political concerns that you have or even with the predator drones, for instance, and not make it into polemical fiction? Well, I think the key is to sit down. Well, I never sit down and say, I'm now going to write a, a scathing story about capitalism uh, or American foreign policy. I think that that, that can really uh, be a dead end. I just I start writing sentences and I, stories and characters and voices start emerging. And then these things come up because that's those are among the things I think about, you know, but I think about a lot of other things that people might find trivial that also I find uh, really necessary for the texture of, of, of fiction and to make it a, an entertaining thing. Um, so my, my theory has always been that what, you know, what you care about will emerge as you're writing. So you don't have to worry about planning some big you know, uh, political assault. You're, it's just... It's in there. It's woven in with all of the other things in the work, and uh, that—I mean, I, I guess that's how it, that's how it's operated for me. Um, I don't—I don't think about it. I kind of go in without some preconceived ideas, but but then—and those those moments sort of present themselves as you're writing the story or a novel. They they take on their own logic, and you and you kind of are just following the logic you've created. You've the you know and eventually uh, these moments arise. Well, it's, it was funny that you mentioned in, in another interview about the response that the Kirkus Review had to your drone yeah. piece. Uh, could you share that with our listeners? Because I, I was really stunned that that was a, uh, a response they had. Well, it was, an, it, it was one of those, you know, Kirkus does those early reviews, so it was a while ago. And, um, and the review s- sort of took me to task perhaps for uh, an overactive imagination and uh, presenting really implausible ideas such as uh, a drone attacking an American on U.S. soil. <laughs> and, Which is hilarious would, now that yeah. we think about that everybody is debating this very, yeah. very thing. Yeah, and so I was, I was just taken with that, with that criticism because it really seemed obvious. It, I didn't think I was having some prophetic idea. I thought... You know, I'm sure as soon as we really understood drones, why, why wouldn't you think about that? Why wouldn't that come into your mind? Um, so, let's let our listeners listen to a little bit of the prose from the fun parts. You have you picked out a section you wanted to sure. Just a, it's a short piece from a a short bit from a story called "The Republic of Empathy," which is actually does have the drone as well. But I'm going to read the first section, uh, which is narrated by a character named William. My wife wanted another baby, but I thought Philip was enough. A toddler is a lot. I couldn't picture us going through the whole ordeal again. We'd just gotten our lives back. We needed time to snuggle with them, plan their futures. But Peg really wanted another baby, said we owed Philip a brother or a sister. That seemed like a pretty huge debt. What do you do for the second child? Have a third? Peg, I said but I had no follow-up, or was it follow-through? Peg sat at the kitchen table scribbling in the workbook she'd gotten from Arno, her German tutor. The handwriting didn't look like hers, though I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen her handwriting. This is a deal-breaker, Peg said, the deal being our marriage. Please don't leave me, she said. Who said I wanted to leave? 
If you refuse to have another baby, that's the same as leaving me. This is emotional blackmail, I said. The emotional aspect is implicit. You could just say blackmail. But why, Peg? This morning I smelled the top of Philip's head. The sweet baby scent is gone. Now it just smells like the top of any dummy's head. I took Philip for a walk. He tired easily, but his gait was significant. He tended to clutch his hands behind his back, like the vexed ruler of something about to disintegrate. How about a brother or a sister, I asked. How about I just pooped, Philip said. Thanks for your input. Peg always said I shouldn't model sarcasm for the boy, but who will? Everybody's so earnest around children. Besides, I've always wanted to model, to strut down the runway under all that strobe and glitter while the fashionably witty cheer on my sarcasm. Do you read your fiction when you're writing fiction to yourself? Because there is a certain rhythmic musical quality to, particularly when you're delivering the punchlines within your dialogue. And I was curious if that's something you sort out when you're when you're writing through um, oral, well, oral. Yeah, I I think possibly if you saw me writing, you might see my lips moving sometimes. But uh, um, I don't do that much out loud. But I think all the time about rhythm and cadence. And, and so with the first draft, I'm getting it all down. But what I'm really looking forward to always is revision and more revision where I can work out those intricacies of, of, of rhythm and patterns and, and all of that. And that's, that's the joy for me. And, and you were, a, a while ago, you were a student of Gordon Lish, so probably yeah. the most the most famous workshop leader in, in the United States. And, and you, you quoted something that he said to you before, which was, um, write what scares you. Yeah. Uh, what, is, what would you consider that to be for you when, when you're writing? What is it that scares you? Well, he, yeah, he used to talk about that. He, he also said, you know, put yourself in jeopardy with something, another way of saying it. And it took me a long time to figure out what, you know, he meant, which was good. It was it kind of the point was that you were you needed to sit with that and figure out what that meant because it's not obviously it's not ghosts and goblins and it's not even the idea that people will find out about something bad you did or something of that sort. I think what it really ended up being for me was what scares me is being seen uh, in in the midst of my obsession, which might be you know a certain kind of paragraph and a, a, a certain way of looking at the world, and you feel vulnerable and raw when people see you seeing things and people see how you process things, and uh, it kind of puts you puts you out on the chopping block a little bit, and uh, and it's not really about the what you know, it's not. As I said before, it's not the the bad thing you did or the 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 experience necessarily. It's it's more about how you're bringing language to those things, and you kind of you really show who you are, and in in a way that does make you vulnerable when you are are pursuing things with with a with heart and honesty, and uh, and that and the kind of obsession that's necessary. We're talking today with Sam Lipsight, the author of The Fun Parts. So when I think of Gordon Lish, I think of uh, Raymond Carver. And I think mm-hmm. of Raymond Carver being known so much for his efficiency and e- economy of, of language. 
um, the pure, pure purity and the compression in his short stories. And then and then we learn how much of that was Gordon Lish when we see the Raymond Carver stories prior to him. Yes. What else have you taken from from Lish in terms of revision and editing? You mentioned that that's really a big part of making the stories what they are. Is it, is it similar to that 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 process you see with the Carver stories? Even I know you guys aren't probably very often compared to each other, Carver and and Lipsight. No, but uh, I I think that kind of effect, especially early on, and and still with short stories. Uh, was a big inspiration for me, and and that yes, and especially I was always interested in writers who had both the ability to compress and the ability to to move with that kind of boldness and swiftness through the prose, um, and then of course the writers that also interested me were quite funny in doing this. So someone who Lish also edited Barry Hanna was a big a big person for me, um, and but I think. If you look at the whole list of people that Lish edited, you'll find very different styles, uh, very different approaches. Um, not all, not all minimalists, you know. But I think that what you, and uh, you know, another writer who maybe a maximalist, Stanley Elkin, who I also uh, read with great interest as as an apprentice writer, uh, um, writes these kind of extravagant. Uh, pieces of prose, but I think what you'll all find with all of them is attention to language, is attention to the sentence, is uh, the ability to listen to the acoustics you're creating. And is there any difference in that consideration uh, of the sentence and of language working on a 20-page short story than working on one of your novels? I don't want there to be. Uh, And I know that some people don't like long pieces of fiction, such as novels, that uh, are trying to do something. All that, that don't have those breaks, that don't have, um, and sometimes I, I sometimes I find myself getting weak. But I, I try to. Uh, my goal is to manage every word in a novel the way I would in a short story, and I don't. You know, I think we all fail on some level, but. That to me, that that's certainly the goal. You you definitely bring in, I think, some novelistic qualities into your short fiction, and one of them being experimenting with multiple points of view, which often you will people see people shy away from if they have something short. But also, uh, novels tend to allow for uh, digression and 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 going off into side areas. And and I'm 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 all for that. I do that quite a bit in my. You do that in, in your my, short fiction, yeah. too. And that, like even in the client in the climber room, I feel like it meanders in a way that I actually think adds to the story, uh, but it feels slightly different than compression to me. Interestingly, it well, feels I think that unpredictable. The, there are a couple stories there that that weren't trying just for pure compression, and I felt that in that story and deniers and a couple of others where, uh, yeah, I, I allow myself to riff just a tiny bit and then and then try to get back into into line into into line because you do you don't want to break the propulsion in, in a short story but i kind of am interested in 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 toying with the idea i guess so i think the reverse used to be true i used to bring short short story techniques into novels maybe and maybe now i'm 
as you say, trying out. But again, I'm trying for maybe a novel is just a a, a longer set of similar effects um, to me. I'm not I'm not sure, but I think there's. I definitely am just trying my damnedest to to pay attention to everything in whatever I'm writing. We definitely have writers like Dickens who would do serial chapters, essentially, so have an arc like a short yeah, story and sure. assemble them into a novel form. Absolutely. I mean, and that they had those sections had the intensity of what we, you know, what we read now as short fiction. As short stories. Yeah. The, the title of, of the collection, The Fun Parts, what, what does that mean to you? Um, well, the, the phrase does appear in the book as a sort of dirty reference, but uh, it's uh, also related to the idea of books themselves. When I, you know, remember, I remember being a kid, people underlining, you know, the good parts, the fun parts. Uh, and then as a writer and l- studying with people like Gordon Lish, beginning to understand, because I see this in my students, they say, uh, well, I just have to write this boring part to get to the good part. Or the fun part, but this is we. I have to drop all of this information in, so the reader knows all this stuff. And it's boring, but it'll be over in ten pages, and then you know the good stuff can can begin. And and I really am trying to get them to understand that it all has to be the good parts, the fun parts. The fun parts. Yeah, and so it it has. And then a a third meaning that sort of occurred to me when I was playing around with it as a title was uh, the idea of if you think of parts as a verb, the fun is sort of parting in the face of some other force. Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So are you working on anything now, Sam? Uh, yeah, trying to uh, work on something longer. Can you tip your hand a little bit about what what it involves? Uh, at the moment, I, I wrote a page that had something to do with mental archery, but that's that's about all I know at this point. <laughs> Well, it's great having you on Between the Covers today. Thank you so much. We were talking today with fiction writer Sam Lipsight about his newest short story collection, The Fun Parts. I'm David Naiman, your host.